If you have your Bible with you, you can open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me, uh, let me start by reading a few verses out of the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 before we move to the section of the chapter that we'll be in today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That was Friday. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's today. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Just for the sake of an abundance of clarity, so that no one mistakes the songs that we've been singing or that you have, have been hearing as hyperbole or poetic license, let me, on behalf of the congregation here, say what we mean when we say that Jesus was raised from the dead. I'll start by saying what we do not mean. We do not mean that Jesus has risen in our hearts in some sort of spiritual way, and that there was a spiritual resurrection absent a physical resurrection. We do not mean that Jesus was resurrected in the sense that his spirit left his body and was raised back up into the heavenly places. When we say what Christians mean when they say that Christ was raised from the dead, is that the body that was put in the tomb walked out. We mean that if you had been in the tomb on Sunday, that a cold body would have grown warm again. We mean that a still body would begin to move as the chest began to rise and fall inhaling and exhaling, we mean that a still heart began to beat again. We mean that Jesus is alive. I don't know on a day like this how many of you may be here because you are here with friends or family, and if you're here with friends or family, perhaps you, you are a Christian yourself and you're part of a, a local congregation that preaches this same message of sinners saved by the grace of a Savior who died in our place and who was raised again to new life to offer us the power of new life that we have already begun to experience but will experience even further 
in a new age to come. I don't know if that's you, or if you may be here with friends and family, and you are not a Christian. You're friendly to Christians or to religion. If that's your thing, ah, that's fine, but that's not for me. If you are not a Christian and you're here, I'm glad that you're here. I've prayed for you prior to this service. I try to pray before every service in the event that we may have non-Christians listening in on what we brothers and sisters say to each other. I hope that in a message that is meant primarily to encourage or to strengthen those of us who know Christ as Lord and Savior, that God would be kind enough to give to you a certain sort of jealousy or righteous envy to have what we have. Or that absent that kind of righteous envy to have what Jesus offers, that God would also do an act of kindness to you and that he would not allow you to leave this place comfortable. That even if you leave here not believing a word of what we have said or sung or prayed, that you have maybe this nagging voice in the back of your head asking, what if it's true? First Corinthians 15 is the most extensive chapter in all the Bible on the resurrection. We are going to spend our time this morning on one paragraph in chapter 15 that starts at verse 12. What Paul has done in the first section of 1 Corinthians 15 up through the first 11 verses is to establish the fact of the resurrection, that Jesus was raised, that we saw him, that there is evidence, eyewitness testimony to the fact that a man who was crucified, who was killed, was raised to new life again. What Paul does in the rest of the chapter, some, what would it be, 50-odd verses, 58 verses or so, from 12 to 58, is he proceeds to explain or elaborate on why that resurrection is significant. What is its significance for God's people? What does it mean that Christ was raised? What does it mean for us? All fine and good that you say that Jesus walked out of the tomb. But what does that mean for those who believe that to be true? Follow along with me if you have your Bible in verses 12 through 19. Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, 
your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we, we Christians, are of all men most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we ask that you would take your word and so press it into our hearts and minds that we would grow in our confidence that you have raised your son from the dead, that he is even now seated in the heavenly places, ruling and reigning over this world and all that happens, and that although we cannot see that, that we know that there is a day when our king will return to claim this world as his own. We look forward to that day and all of the gifts and blessings that will come with our Savior Jesus Christ. May your spirit work on our hearts and minds to strengthen us in our faith and to fill us with great joy and hope. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. One of the interesting things about 1 Corinthians 15 is that for as long as what this chapter is, the primary emphasis is not necessarily or is not in a straightforward sort of way about Christ's resurrection in and of itself. I mean, it is, but there's, there's also more to it than that. Again, in the first paragraph, Paul is establishing the fact that Christ has been raised, but the main task of chapter 15, having said this is what we believe that Christ was raised, the main task of chapter 15 is to say, because Christ has been raised, this is what it means for those who profess that belief. One of the interesting things that you notice if you read and if you reread and reread and reread again, you begin to notice some repetition in chapter 15. So in verse 12, apparently, well, the repetition clues us into something like this. The issue here that Paul is addressing is not that these Christians in Corinth are denying that Christ was raised. That's not what, what Paul is primarily concerned with demonstrating. They seem to grant that. Rather, listen and see if you can tell what Paul's concern is, what the disconnect is that he is trying to straighten out. In verse 12, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 16, if the dead are not raised, verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 29, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? 
I do not know what Paul is talking about here. Don't ask me after the service. More to the point, notice the next sentence, if the dead are not raised, why then are they baptized for them? Verse 35, someone will say, perhaps mockingly, how are the dead raised? Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. And verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. All that to say simply this. It's apparent that what the problem is for these Christians is not that they're denying the fact that Christ was bodily raised. That seems to be established, and they've taken that on Paul's word and the testimony of other witnesses. What they seem not to be able to recognize or to connect to that profession of faith is that the resurrection of Christ means something for them in the here and now in addition to the future. Paul, Paul addresses how the resurrection changes everything for the Christian, both in the present and in the future. Because of 1 Corinthians 15, I don't know that you could go anywhere today and find any self-respecting Christian or Christian who has any sort of basic understanding or knowledge of the faith who would say that Christ has been raised, but we will never be raised. That just doesn't seem to be an issue or a problem now because of the benefit that we have with the Scriptures clarifying these issues we would refer to that as heretical to say that there is no future resurrection. The church has confessed that for thousands of years. Let me suggest, though, that while we as Christians may not be literal heretics, we may run the danger of being practical heretics. That is, we can confess the fact that Jesus was crucified, buried, and risen again, but like the Corinthians, only slightly different, we may not outright deny that Christ's resurrection means something for us, but for all intents and purposes, the resurrection of Christ has no direct bearing on the way that we live our lives here in the present moment. Practical heretics. It makes no difference to the way that we live. Do you ever stop and think about the fact that if you die, you will also be resurrected? Do you ever just stop and think about that? If you stop and think about that, the fact that you too will be bodily raised out of the dirt do you ever then take the next step and say, so how does that affect the way that I think about my life now? That's what we're talking about. Christ has been raised, so what? Why is that important? What does it mean? Let me try to give you three things to take away. Number one, because Christ has been raised... Our own resurrection is certain. Number two, because Christ has been raised, 
our faith has meaning. Or you might say it's real. Number three, because Christ has been raised, our faith is effective. It actually does something because it's real. Because of Christ's resurrection, our resurrection is certain, our faith has meaning, and our faith is effective. Start with me back in verse 12. The challenge of of verses 12 through 19 is the fact that Paul frames much of this discussion in the negative. And I'm going to try really hard not to be negative on Easter Sunday. I want to frame this in a positive way. So we're going to take the negative hypotheticals that Paul gives, and we're going to say, now we know that Paul is framing this hypothetically. What it really means positively is this. So we're going to take the negative hypothetical, and we're going to flip it into the positive that is true. Notice what Paul does in the very beginning. If Christ is preached, verse 12, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Once again, the Corinthians are not denying Christ's resurrection. They're denying their own resurrection. They're not doubting that Christ was raised. They're doubting that they will be raised. Now, there are probably any number of reasons that you could give for this, which we don't need to go into now. Cultural influences, the Greco-Roman philosophy of the day that viewed the body as sort of the prison for the spirit. Once your spirit is set free at death, why would you ever want to go back into the prison house of the body? Right? Lots of things that would have contributed to this disconnect, not recognizing that Jesus' resurrection means something for us. But regardless of why they doubt or would even deny their own personal resurrection, I want you to notice what Paul does with that. Paul says that if a Christian were to deny or to doubt his own resurrection, he might as well deny or doubt Christ's resurrection. You say, well, that doesn't seem to be strictly logical. You can believe that something happened for one person, but it doesn't happen for every person. But that's the point that Paul is making. Paul's point is that because resurrection has happened for one, it will necessarily happen for all. Just as in Adam, the one man, all die, so also in Christ, all will live. The point is to say that in the incarnation, because the Son of God becomes a man, he is joined in solidarity with his people. It is like a marriage. When we enter into covenant relationship with Christ, when we are joined to him, when we are united to Christ, it's just like a marriage. Everything that one spouse brings into the marriage and the other brings in is shared between the two. All that we bring into our union with Christ, Christ takes. 
and all that he brings into our union, he gives. Listen, this is scattered. This idea that what he has we receive, bearing even on the notion of future resurrection, this truth or principle is scattered all over the New Testament. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Do you hear that? What I get, you get. They hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I go to the cross, you must go to the cross. I am crucified, I give up my rights, you must give up your rights. Paul says in Philippians 3 that he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And he says again in Romans 8 that if we are children of God, we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. That is, all that Christ has inherited through his perfect obedience, all that he has received from the Father, all of that we get a share in. We are co-heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Everything that Christ has, he has to give to us, including his own physical, bodily resurrection. In his death, he took all that belonged to us, all of our sin, all of our corruption, all of the judgment that we deserve, he took it and he buried it with himself so that in being raised, he could give to us all that he owned and possessed, which is life. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, and because we have been united to Christ by his Spirit, God must either raise you from the dead, or he must remove his Son from heaven and put him back into the grave. Which is more likely to happen? That is how certain your future resurrection is. If God did not raise his people in the way that he raised his son, he would have to put his son back in the earth. Number two, our faith has meaning. Because we believe that Christ was raised. This is an article, an essential component of our faith. Everything else hinges on the work of Christ in his death, resurrection, and ascension. Our faith 
centered on the reality, the certainty of Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection with him gives meaning, gives substance to our faith. Look at the way that Paul phrases it in verses 14 and 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. When Paul says in verse 14 that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, it means that it's empty. It has no substance. You might as well gather on a Sunday morning to hear someone read to you from Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. Good story doesn't mean anything. It's not real. If Christ has been raised, Paul says, then what we do when we gather here on Sunday morning means something. If Christ has been raised from the dead, if we will be raised from the dead, that means that every other article of our faith that is connected in some way to Christ means something. It has substance and weight to it, even though we don't yet see all of the substance and weight that our faith points to. Our faith is not wishful thinking. It is not optimistic hopes and dreams. Because it is based on reality, on something that actually happened, on Christ being raised, and because Christ is, unit, is united to his people so that what has happened to him will happen with us, then all that you do as a member of the body of Christ has ultimate meaning and significance. This means that none of our tears are wasted. And that for every sorrow that we encounter in this life, there will be a corresponding and greater reward. Because our faith has meaning. When we come and when we sing on Sunday morning, whether we recognize it or not, our songs carry the tune from our distant homeland. The place where we haven't yet arrived, but where we know we belong. Our Sundays, as we stop and as we break from work and quote-unquote regular normal schedules, is a foretaste of a greater unending rest in what the Scriptures refer to as an eternal Sabbath.
our communion on the first Sunday of the month when we gather at the Lord's table to take that little small wafer, to take that little small cup is a reminder that what we mean when we take that is that that participation in that shared meal is not even an appetizer for the feast that will be ours in a new heaven and new earth. The voices that speak and pray and sing God's word are getting us ready to say, come. Let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us. And these flutters of joy and excitement that seem so fleeting, that we want to grasp and hang on to in our best moments, but we find that the moment that we turn to look at them and to lay hold of them, it seems that they've slipped through our fingers. All these flutters of joy are the taste of endless delight. If Christ has been raised, you will be raised too. And if you will be raised, your faith that you are living right now is meaningful and significant. There is nothing that you do in this life that is wasted. Number three, not only does our faith have meaning and substance, our faith is effective. It does something. Look at verse 16, 16 through 18. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. A little bit different here in verse 17. He said earlier that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching and your faith is in vain. That is, it is empty or hollow. Here he uses a different word, worthless here in New American Standard, but it probably has something to do with the idea of it being fruitless or futile, right? In other words, your, your faith doesn't actually accomplish anything. It doesn't do anything. Even if you were to grant that it meant something, it doesn't mean anything in such a way that it produces any kind of real change. For Paul, more specifically, when he says that Apart from the resurrection of Christ, your faith would be fruitless, it would be futile. If we frame that positively, right, for the point that Paul is trying to make, to say that because Christ has been raised and because you also will be raised, your faith is fruitful, 
it is accomplishing something. Paul goes on to clarify what that fruitfulness is that makes faith effective, and I think he does it in two ways. The first one is when he says at the end of verse 17 that if the resurrection were not so, you would still be in your sins. Which means, framed positively, because the resurrection is true and because you will be raised, you are no longer in your sins. I think that has two meanings. One, it means that you are no longer in your sins in the sense that that is how you are seen or identified by your creator and by your rightful king. When he looks on you, he does not see you in sin. He sees you in Christ. That means that those of us who know that we will be resurrected because we know that Christ has been resurrected, we know that that is a gift and a reward that the Lord gives to his righteous people. But a righteousness that we did not create ourselves, but a righteousness that was given to us by Christ. It means that as I reflect and look back on my life or on my day, and I am ashamed and embarrassed, humiliated by the things that I have done and said and thought and wished, it means that I can turn from those thoughts, you can turn from those thoughts, from that dread, from that dreariness, and say, Christ has died for me. More than that, Christ has been raised for me. His life is now my life. My life is no longer marred in a judicial way, marred by sin. But my creator has now become my father. He looks on me with love and compassion and loves me with the same love in which he loved his son, Jesus Christ. It means that because our faith is effective and meaningful, because it takes us from death to life, that you no longer have to fear judgment in the future. You can know today for certain that you have no outstanding debt to which you must answer before the Lord because that debt has been paid in full by Christ. It means that when our enemy comes, and whispers into our ear, you are a great sinner. We can say, 
That's true. But Christ is a great Savior. We are no longer in our sins. We no longer fear the penalty of that sin. But it also means, because we are no longer in our sins, that not only are we not under the penalty, the, the potential judgment of sin, it also means that we are no longer in the power of sin. It means that the sin that once held you, that you could not break free from, no longer holds you. Because the hold that that sin had on you was a hold on your old life. You don't have old life anymore. You have resurrected life. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that raises you to new life now and will also one day raise you bodily in the future. Now you can know the power of Christ's resurrection as you put to death the deeds of the flesh. Therapy, counseling, accountability groups, all those things, they can help you cope with sin. They can't kill sin. Christ can, and he has. And if Christ has been raised, and you have been raised with him, the power of sin no longer has a hold on you. The other thing that makes our faith effective, according to Paul, in verse 18 is when he says that those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Again, frame negatively. Frame positively. If Christ has been raised, if we also will be raised, then that means that those who have already died have not been completely, utterly lost. If you have a father and mother, a father or mother, or a son or a daughter, or a friend, or a spouse, or a child, whatever it is, who has died in the Lord, death is not the last word. Were it not for the resurrection, death would be it. There would be no more after that. Nothing for us to look forward to. What Paul is saying here is that the fruitfulness or the effectiveness of our faith is such that not only does it free us from the penalty of sin, not only does it set us free from the power of sin, but it actually holds us secure so that the power of death cannot win over us. When we take our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether of a family relationship or not, and we lay that body in the ground, we know that it's a temporary holding place. 
we know that they will not be destroyed. That God will raise them up out of the grave as he will all those who have placed their trust in Christ. It means that there's coming a day, if I have my theology right, in which those believers who have died before us will enter into their new resurrection life at the same time that we will enter into our resurrection life. Which means that the joy that we will experience in new life will be magnified by the fact that we will all enter into that resurrected life together at the same time. Look, Dad, here it is. Our faith holds us not only in this life, but it holds us for the life to come. And so Paul can say at the end of this passage, in verse 19, once again framed negatively, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If we can flip this on its head to frame it positively, because we have hoped in Christ in this life and for the life to come, we are of all people most to be envied. That's the significance of the resurrection. The world may not recognize it, may not see it, may not know, may not understand the hope that you have, the value, the benefit, the reward, the treasure that is Jesus Christ. But one day, everyone will see not only the resurrected Christ, they will also see his resurrected people, and they will say, those are the people most to be envied. Let's pray. Father, in your great love, you saved us, not because of righteousness of our own, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to your great love, a love that took on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God made man to live as a man, to die as a man, to be raised as a man, so that we as men and women could be given that same new life. We praise you and thank you for the gift of our salvation and the security that we have in the victory of Christ. We thank you for the work of your Spirit who has enabled us to see 
the reality and the truth of this faith that we confess. And we ask that according to your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness, that by your spirit you would hold us in this faith through all the difficulties and storms of life, through the high times and the low times, so that our hope is nothing more and nothing less than resurrection life, enjoying you in your glory in a new heaven and new earth. May it change the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we pray and interact and plead with other people as we make an appeal for them to share in our joy that we are just now beginning to taste and experience in Christ's name and for his glory we ask this. Amen.